Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is called Melodrama, Crime, Fantasy, and War. It's 17 film capsules, some longer than others. The first one is Ah Wilderness, which I believe is the longest of all of them. It's about six minutes long. And then others, sometimes it's just a minute or two. Sometimes I just have an observation offer. This isn't the usual film review, more in-depth approach I take, even though you know the podcasts are generally short, 15 to minutes to half an hour. Uh, you know, Usually I'm spending longer on the, the films than this. This is literally just moving through some films I watched, offering some brief thoughts on them, and uh, you know, going from there. So these were originally recorded for my Patreon podcast, and I've collected them here, uh, basically starting with the theme of Hollywood classics, and then within that, uh, sort of organizing them into different sort of genre. So uh, first, there's some melodramatic films, although the first one's pretty comedic. Um, that kind of bounces off of what I've been covering for the past couple of months podcast, where I covered Swing Time, Pretty Lighthearted Musical Romp in July, and Monkey Business, the Howard Hawks uh, screwball kind of comedy. Uh, I say kind of because it's a 50s film, not a 30s film. So a little bit of a distinction there, which I talked about in that episode back in August. So Our Wilderness builds a little bit off of that tone, and then it gets into more melodramatic material, A Letter for, to Three Wives, uh, Invitation, Morning Glory, Parnell, and then some crime films, Little Caesar, Dick Tracy, Nightmare Alley, Gilda, The Woman in White, and then, uh, broadly speaking, fantasy films. This encompasses like fables, fairy tales, sci-fi. Uh, that includes It Came from Outer Space, Pinocchio, The Devil and Daniel Webster, The Enchanted Cottage, and then some war films, which ties into The Enchanted Cottage, which takes place during World War II. That includes The White Cliffs of Dover and The Fallen Sparrow and The Angel War Red, which are both about the Spanish Civil War. Interesting topic there. So those are the films that I watched over probably a two or three year period, uh, usually from Turner Classic Movies. I recorded some movies on my DVR in uh, 2019 and went back and uh, visited them in uh, later times. So that's where a lot of these viewings came from. And again, this was for my Patreon podcast, where I have a whole section where I just talk about things that I've watched, uh, podcasts I've listened to, books I've read, etc. And uh, this was included in there. I thought it would be interesting to repackage it this way. So hopefully you enjoy this presentation. Before we get to that, here's what I've been up to uh, elsewhere online on my other podcast feeds for Twin Peaks Cinema. I put out episode number 16, Rebel Without a Cause, part of the miniseries Ray's Haunted 50s, where I'm talking about Nicholas Ray films and comparing them to Twin Peaks. So in this case, the legendary James Dean uh, performance and film, uh, bringing that into uh, the Twin Peaks universe, talking about some of the connections there. And I have a cross post for that on my site, as, as usual, as I do for most of these uh, podcasts where I talk a little bit about what's in the episode and have links to it on different platforms. On YouTube, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number 13 audio, Horror and Melodrama and Firewalk With Me with Lindsay Hallam. She is the author of a book about Firewalk With Me, and I thought this would be a good conversation to hold on the 30th anniversary of the Twin Peaks film coming out in U.S. theaters. And on Patreon for $5 a month patrons, I released uh, the Patreon-exclusive part two of the Twin Peaks Conversations with Lindsay Hallam, running, I think, almost an hour in that case. So significantly longer than the YouTube part, uh, as is often the case with these Patreon parts. The uh, rewards for patrons are usually a little bit longer, sometimes a lot longer than the public portion. And we continue to discuss like 
the genre connections of Firewalk with me in there, particularly in the uh, back half, focusing on melodrama, which has also been a theme. Well, it's a theme on this podcast that you're about to listen to, and also some of the Twin Peaks cinema topics in recent months have been uh, melodramatic in nature as well. For dollar a month patrons, I released my bonus episode number uh, 90, or well, my my patron episode, I should say, because there was a bonus within this, the patron episode 94, the 80s in August. I talk about the films Desperately Seeking Susan and Top Gun. Those are my films in focus. And then I have capsules on Stranger Things, Poltergeist, Beverly Hills Cop, Witness, The Breakfast Club, Wall Street, Twins, The Hunger, and archive reading of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, an essay I wrote on that about a decade ago. And also feedback and media and work updates, including Captain America, Civil War, and more. Free for the Public on Patreon was a bonus for episode 94, where I read essays on 80s films that I've written in the past uh, 15 years. So movies like E.T., uh, An American Tale, and others in there. I called this Opening the Archive, the 80s Imagination. And then also for the Dollar a Month patrons, um, not a podcast, but I put out my exclusive advance, Twin Peaks Character Series number 77 through 75, where I have uh, detailed character studies on quite a few in this case, because there's also groups of characters in there, characters from uh, Twin Peaks. And I'm offering these in advance of when these uh, written essays will go public in 2023. Patrons get a sneak peek at three a month. On my site, I just had a cross post for the uh, previous month's patron episode on uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, the Jim Jarmusch film. And other than that, everything's been on basically podcast platforms this past month. So that's it for my recent work. Now let's move on to the collection of classic Hollywood film capsules. Yeah, see if you recognize the handwriting. I resent the implication that I correspond with all of them women. No, I don't know her. Richard, would you let me kiss you goodnight? Oh, Richard. Please. No, you mustn't. Come on, let's get down to brass tacks. What's he done? been trying to corrupt the morals of my daughter. Now, Dave, I'm afraid I am going to have to call you a liar. I thought you'd get around to that. The one that really stuck out with me as a wonderful surprise was the film Ah Wilderness. This is based on a Eugene O'Neill play, and I watched it a couple months after I watched Our Town, which I described in my Twin Peaks cinema entry in this podcast last uh, last year. And this was such an interesting companion to that. I had, you know, I'd known about Our Town for years, of course. Uh, Our Wilderness I'd not heard of, even though, of course, O'Neill is a major playwright. It came out around the same time, I think actually a few years earlier than Our Town, maybe. Certainly the film came out quite a few years earlier than the Our Town film, for sure. And in a way, though, Our Wilderness almost feels like a riff on Our Town. Our Town is much more sort of lofty, uh, there's not, you know, there's some corny down-home humor in it, but it, it's not like an arch-witty, wry play. This, on the other hand, is full of wacky humor and totally unpretentious and amused at life and the characters in its world. And as such, it's just a fascinating alternate view of the same sort of story that our town uh, tells, where you have a small New England town, you have a young man kind of restless to get on with life and with adulthood and a young woman that he's in love with, who he's sort of having trouble communicating with, and the sturdy father who looks at his son and tries to guide him along and these sort of extended 
extended family and the townspeople, you know, they're almost doppelgangers of each other. But the tone is so radically different. This feels like it takes the 19, you know, 1904 America or whenever this is, 1900, turn of the century Americana, and it demystifies it entirely, where, you know, it's just full of drunks and women of the world, uh, you know, as they're probably euphemistically called. He has a, uh, the son has a bit of a fling with this woman in a bar and a saloon really is more what it is. And it just gives you this more down to earth take on the same exact milieu. And I found that aspect so fascinating. There's also a fantastic scene where the son who is very somber and humorless and, but you know, the, the, obviously a little bit of a riff i think on eugene o'neill himself and the film has some fun poking fun at him but also is endeared with him lionel barrymore plays the father and he's watching the son give a speech and he's nodding along the son is saying we've been taught all of these wonderful things about our community the fine values that lead us forward into the world the progress of the civic-minded business-minded citizens and so forth and so on and they're all nodding along and applauding something falls out of the son's pocket and uh, lionel barrymore picks it up it's a little speech and he unfolds it, grinning and smiling as his son is speaking. And he looks at what's coming up in the speech. He looks at what the next paragraph is going to be. And it says, but all of these are lies, all of them. We are living under the tyranny of capitalism and it must be overthrown. And he freaks out and he grabs his son before he can finish the speech and tries to make it you know, make off with it. But it's funny, not only because it's a little bit of a glimpse into how prevalent radicalism was in the 30s when this film was made, when something like that, even if it's treating it with a little bit of a sort of a condescension of, you know, youths will be youths, it's still treating it as something that is an everyday occurrence. It's not like evil foreign subversives are trying to overthrow America. It's like, oh no, a lot of Americans, particularly young Americans, have criticisms of society and the system, and that's just how it is. But showing not only how that's perceived in the Depression era, but also in the early 1900s, you know, this was a time when socialism and progressivism were really on the rise. There's that famous bit I talked about in our town where the guy says, oh, the town has 85% Republican, 4% Democrat, and like 12% or 11% socialist or something like that. Like there's more socialists than Democrats, which is kind of an accurate a depiction of a, of a lot of these places at that time, a lot of these like New England communities in particular. So I just found it was a really interesting companion to Our Town, um, a film that I would love to uh, see again and maybe discuss again at greater length. Also, Wallace Beery, he's the drunken uncle and he's so funny. Wallace Beery is always uh, my favorite part of most movies he's in. And here are the three wives as they appear in this superb screen entertainment. There's the wave who became a wife. There's the gold digger. And there's the career woman. Finally, there's the girl who wrote the letter, Addie Ross. Addie, just what did you put in that letter? Oh, a number of things. But the important thing is in the last sentence. You see, girls, I run off with one of your husbands. I watched A Letter to Three Wives, the Joseph L. Mankiewicz film, about, I mean, as it says, three wives who get a letter from one of their friends they didn't really like but uh you know she's part of their social circle saying i left with one of your husbands who knows who it is and they're going off for the day on a boat and you have to kind of figure out through flashback which of the husbands it is mankiewicz loves this form i think he was particularly inspired by his brother's work 
Herman Mankiewicz on uh, Citizen Kane, the storytelling, or maybe they just both had it in them. But Joseph Mankiewicz does, he tells all about Eve through flashback, different characters' points of view. The Barefoot Contessa does this as well with Hollywood. This is a format that, that he's really brilliant at using. And here it's used to great effect. I'm actually trying to remember now, because it's been almost a year since I've seen this, do they ever show the woman who wrote the letters? I can't remember if she is like a character in the film who all of the husbands are kind of drawn to and the wives are sort of jealous of. Of, or if she's someone who's always off screen and about to be there and the subject of conversation. I mean, that's a big difference within the film. I think it's the latter. I think we never see her. I think we just, she's like a voice that we hear narrating as they kind of think about her letter and all of that. And she represents this kind of threat to the women as something that maybe their husbands would prefer to them. And so we see each of their relationships unfold. One of them is like a woman who just kind of wants a sugar daddy and she gets with this wealthy man and then she kind of loves him but thinks that he doesn't respect her and there's this sort of cross purposes between them and then there's uh, Kirk Douglas is one of the husbands he is like a writer who they want to uh, write for a radio show that the wife works for there's a kind of a tension there because he's a I think he's a teacher actually at the school and uh, she makes much more than he does so he feels kind of hamstrung by that and embarrassed and uh, so their relationship has an interesting dynamic there. And then the other wife is, she's she's sort of like, a, she comes from a poor rural background. And she feels like this guy is way out of her league in some ways. And so you're trying, you're watching along, trying to figure out who is going to be the one who's, who loses her husband and guessing along the way, which one is it going to be? And, and so it's, it's fascinating for that aspect as well as a way to kind of build character to have both this mystery of who's it going to be and also this sense of like, as you understand the characters, I think you come to know who it kind of has to be. And and, and I my guess to that effect was correct. The actresses are Anne Southern, Linda Darnell, and uh, Jean Crane in that as well. So actually, you know what? I think you do see it. They do have an actress list. I just can't remember if you see her. I'm going to pull up pull this up right now because I want to know. Yes, I'm right. Okay, an uncredited. Celeste Holm provides the voice of Addie Ross, the unseen woman who wrote the titular letter. Okay, so I was right. Yeah, I love that effect. And it's funny that I couldn't even quite remember it because they do create such a strong sense of that character and her threat to this world. It reminds me a lot too of Desperate Housewives. I feel like this might have been an inspiration for that where you're getting a look into the domestic lives of all these people through like a cynical removed narrator. I think in that case, a woman who killed herself initially. It was actually supposed to be played by Cheryl Lee. That was the original casting. And then they went with another Twin Peaks actress Brenda Strong who plays Jones on the show and again with this was with all the movies I watch on TCM but particularly the ones that take place in some sort of day-to-day like average people environment not just like a adventure but like how people live their lives peeking in on that and seeing that is fascinating this takes place in the late 40s and you can see radio playing the role that television would play in a few years for example where they sit around the living room and they're listening to the commercials that people are writing and stuff like that as a matter of fact as things were going if it hadn't been for you I might have married it but I didn't. I married you. Why? Why did you marry me? Why? I married you for your money, of course. Invitation I watched on Turner Classic Movies. This is a early 1950s melodrama with Dorothy McGuire and Van Johnson, where uh, the premise is pretty compelling. It starts off with a woman who's been married for a year. She's somewhat sickly, but very happy in her marriage and then through a series of like events and discoveries and reflections as she looks back on the past couple of years she comes to realize 
that her husband may have actually been hired to marry her by her father because she's dying and he wanted her to be happy. Kind of this horrific revelation just delves sort of like Midsommar, actually. I didn't get a chance to say that with Midsommar, you know, another reason to bring it back up for uh, film and focus. But both of these films deal with this paranoid conception of like, what does my lover really think of me? You know, are they actually in love with me? Are they just trying to make me feel better? And that's actually making me feel worse. Uh, Invitation doesn't end quite like Midsommar does, but it plays on that same sense of like paranoia and sad lack of self-esteem in really interesting ways. This is the first time I've ever made that comparison, actually. And now I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it film also features the actor from uh the asphalt jungle I'm trying to remember his name lewis calhern i like him a lot he's the father this kind of doting father figure who uh has his own you know plans about what what he wants to do you find out little by little whether this conspiracy theory of hers is true i, I just found the hook very compelling and the world that it creates with all of these older films i think there's just something so intoxicating about their ability to wrap you up in this sort of soundstage reality i've talked about it a lot with twin peaks and this it's this connecticut home she has with this snowy outside and you're in the home and she's walking around pacing trying to figure out what in her life is real and what isn't and uh, it's just this marvelous ability of the old hollywood to to wrap you up in that type of environment that I, that I love. I love sinking into these films. You know, this is the thing, and somebody was saying this the other day about watching Turner Classics is like, a lot of these films aren't like great films by any means, but they're just really solid entertainments and they hit a certain baseline. And, you know, of course, these are the ones that that have lasted long enough for them to show you on there. So they are probably a little bit better than average, at least. But these are films that, at their baseline level, they're able to pull you into some sort of magical world, which I think a lot of movies now don't. Here I am. So I see. I hope you're going to tell me your name. I want you for my first friend in New York. Mine's Eva Lovelace. It's partly made up and partly real. It was Ada Love. Love's my family name. I added the lace. Morning Glory, I finally saw the Catherine Hepburn film with Adolf Menju, and uh, Catherine Hepburn is this young actress trying to come up in New York. Another just enjoyable early 30s portrait of the world in snapshots where they're able to suggest much through these sort of gestures, these little sets, these performances, these moments between the characters, usually building off of a kind of theatrical... I mean, this is a film about theater, but uh, I'm not sure if it was a play. I'm pretty sure it was. In this case, actually, it was a play that was unproduced. So... Interestingly, it found its first realization as a film, even though it's so immersed in the world of the theater. And in the film, Catherine Hepburn plays this actress who's kind of obnoxious and, and uh, you know, causes you to roll your eyes a little. But she comes to New York, very naive, convinced she's going to take on the world and gets taken advantage of by a lot of other people, but keeps working hard and ends up kind of back in that spot. The classic kind of, uh, all right, put her on, bring out the understudy type moment near the end. Mr. Parnell. I, I've kept you waiting. I apologize. It was extremely kind of you to see me at all, Mr. Parnell. You're Mrs. O'Shea. Yes. I was in the ladies' gallery just now when you spoke. I watched the film Parnell with Clark Gable as the Irish leader who led a push for home rule for Ireland that uh, ultimately uh, struggled and failed because of his uh, 
personal scandal where he had a romance with a married woman played in the film by Myrna Loy. And I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed the atmosphere of it. You know, I always love Hollywood kind of depicting these different eras and uh, places in this heightened style. I looked it up after and saw it was like despised by many critics and fans of the time. They hated the the fact that Gable and Loy were cast in this way. They didn't think they were right from the part. And uh, the actors themselves didn't like it. I think Gable particularly detested it, detested that he was playing this kind of sensitive, soft-spoken character. So uh, that was interesting to read. Um, but, you know, my my reaction was uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I found it uh, absorbing and also interesting just from a historical perspective, even though, of course, it's... I, very sanitized version of the uh, of the actual relationship, as I understand. I think they had a bunch of kids together and stuff. Uh, the film there, it's played somewhat platonically, although still fairly boldly in that, like, it's just put straightforward out there. Like, she's not in love with her husband, he's in love with her, and he really doesn't care about anything else. Watching the kind of political dynamics as the, uh, as the people in his party decide whether or not they can continue to support him uh, even if they, you know, whether he's a detriment to the cause that he championed or, or not. I told you a little buzzard like you will never put any cuffs on me. You should have come out when I told you to, Rico. Ah. Mother of mercy. Is this the end of Rico? Little Caesar I rewatched, that's a blast to watch. You know, there's something about those early 30s films that's so elemental. They're not trying for anything big or pretentious. And I love the later 40s films. I love the 70s new Hollywood films where there's all of this darkness and depth and mood and subtlety and complexity. But there's something so satisfying, too, about this, this spitfire early gangster movies or monster movies where it's just all skin and bones. Edward G. Robinson is so much fun in this performance. Temperamental little crank. It's funny to watch the gangster film before there were any real conventions of the gangster film. So you're watching these characters perform the rituals of the gangster movie, kind of inventing them before your eyes, and they're doing so in these Victorian rooms with old wallpaper and stuff, still with a foot in the 19th century. I just found that element, just from a socio-historical point of view, one of the most fun things. I also love the scene where they're all having like a big banquet and uh, kind of arguing with each other about who gets the most attention a rogues gallery of of mobsters and of course one of the great death scenes in in movie history stupid fools the police if they had my knowledge of the occult and this crystal ball there'd be no need of detectives in it i can see anything and there wouldn't be any crooks either because you could look in there and foresee what's at the end of the line for them might discourage them Dick Tracy from 1945, not the 1990 film, although I'd like to revisit that at some point too. I don't even know if I knew this film existed. I knew there was a serial, and there were actually quite a few serials starting in the late 30s, but this was the first like feature film uh, released by RKO, and they ended up making a few more, the different actor initially than the serials, although they brought the serial actor back for, at some point for some reason. I'm, I'm not totally sure why. It has Jane Greer in it, who plays uh, Norma's mother, or supposed mother in Twin Peaks. So I was watching along, and I think it took me a moment to realize, and I was like, oh my God, sorry, I texted Twin Peaks on Raptosts with the uh, image, said, guess who? 
you know, who am I watching now? And there was actually a few Turner classics like this where I ran into familiar faces, so to speak. But the film has a bunch of victims being killed by this uh, mysterious figure, and they can't figure out what connects them. And there's a clever twist to how they're connected in the end. And also this strange astronomer character who they run into that they, they just kind of descend on his apartment while racing across the roofs. Um, looking for the the killer. He turns out to have a connection to it as well. And one of the things I enjoyed about watching this is beyond just watching these movies, enjoying kind of the plot of the atmosphere, I like seeing the portrait they reveal of either the times or how people looked at the time. So in this, there's a lot of like domestic scenes. It's this interesting mix of sort of a city and the kind of a more of like a town, you know, suburban kind of life. I don't know if you call it that exactly, but it's like pre-50s. And you're getting this sense of how that lifestyle, that environment was conceptualized at the time. If that makes any sense, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm saying you see a lot of domestic, you know, what what American domestic life was like from the 50s onward, particularly in the 50s. But seeing it just a decade or two earlier and also how they kind of navigate between the idea of like an urban space and these ex-urban or suburban spaces to me is really interesting. So kind of an odd thing to look to a Dick Tracy movie for, but that's one of the things that struck me. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind Uh-oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. Another one that I watched around this time, Nightmare Alley, I've seen a couple times. Yeah, this is like, I think it was like a B-movie at the time, but it's really grown in reputation about a carnival mentalist played by Tyrone Power. A great performance by him where it really captures the kind of haunted quality beneath his matinee idol uh, uh, looks and persona. This is a film that to me has several Lynchian qualities. I mean, it certainly recalls the Elephant Man, its use of the, the carnival freaks. This mentalist, he rises and falls in society where for a time he has high profile clients and he's kind of scamming people in a big way and gets into a relationship with a shrink who's blackmail involved and all this stuff. But his fear initially and then eventually again is becoming the carnival geek, basically. The, the one who's like rips the head off the chickens it's like the person lowest on the totem pole in the carnival who is just uh, has to play this monstrous figure and so there's a real interesting class dynamic to the film it's a classic noir where uh, the the atmosphere and the environment kind of provides that noir quality and i suppose the plot to an extent it's not part of like the private eye detective subgenre of, of noirs it's it's more like where you're just completely immersed in the underworld and nobody can quite be trusted nobody's really on the level and you're tossed between all of them so that would be interesting to revisit and maybe even talk about a connection to Twin Peaks. I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll put that on the register. What did you say to him? I just told him if a man answers, hang up. Didn't you hear about me, Gabe? If I'd been a ranch, they would have named me the bar nothing. There never was a woman like Gilda or a picture like Gilda. Columbia's outstanding screen triumph, starring Rita Hayworth. I rewatched the film Gilda. Hadn't seen that in a while, and I'd forgotten a lot of the plot mechanics of it. It's very weird sadomasochist relationship that the 
two main characters have. Like people have talked about the sort of homoerotic overtones between the main character there, the Glenn Ford character and the George McReady character. But even just with Rita Hayworth and Glenn Ford, the back and forth between them is like way more brutal and like ruthless than I remembered. And then, you know, at a certain point, they're just kind of like, oh, well, that was that. Very bizarre. The extent to which they torment each other and seem to uh, enjoy tormenting each other. But Rita Hayworth, I mean, that's just so fucking good in this movie. She has that infamous quote. Uh, everybody, every guy I ever met um, went to bed with Gilda and woke up with me, which is sort of a poignant uh, comment on how people were not able to see her because it was obscured by just her, her legend, basically. But you can see why a film like this would create such a legend. I mean, just the presence that she has in this film. Uh, the singing and the constant teasing of the singing. I love that too. Like I, I was watching it and I was trying to remember, it's like, does she actually sing the, put the blame on Mame song? Or am I just misremembering that that's like a big number? Cause she sings it a few times and then it's like interrupted. Or she doesn't go all the way with it. And then like, of course there's that scene where she's in the black dress and she sings it all on the stage. And I'd forgotten, I think the whole Nazi subplot of it as well. So that was fun to revisit. If you're going to watch a classic movie, sit down and entertain yourself with something that screams like classic Hollywood, you know, hard to do better than that. To these pages, I entrust the strange story of my days at Limeridge House and the even stranger people so closely woven into those memories. Memories that all began with the first mysterious appearance of the woman in white and the evils she brought into all our lives. Another film I watched around this time on Turner Classics was The Woman in White. I had never read the book by Wilkie Collins, the mystery uh, novel. So this was my first exposure to the story. I watched it in many pieces over a few months. I would just watch a little here and there. Nonetheless, it was very absorbing. A lot of atmosphere. It's sort of an old country home in the rain and mysterious figures moving about in the shadows. A good deal of humor, I think particularly there's one character, the pathetic patriarch of the house who is melodramatic about his sensitivity to sounds or movements, yells at everyone around him, played by John Abbott. That was fun. And Sidney Greenstreet, that's the name I'm looking for. He is also in this. It's always enjoyable to see him in a film and Agnes Moorhead and all these other characters. So you have this colorful cast of characters, uh, absorbing, moody location, and this shaggy dog story of all of these different mysterious relations and people perfect concoction to come together in this uh, so I really enjoyed it even if I did watch it in about a million different pieces who were the all powerful creatures it brought from outer space and what did they want on earth you can learn the amazing answer only when you see the most thrilling picture in years it came from outer space in the astonishing realism of three dimension with objects coming right out of the screen, so real they almost touch you. Another one that I actually do want to discuss in relation to Twin Peaks at some point is it came from outer space, based on the Ray Bradbury story. This is a sci-fi film about, I think it's Martians, some aliens from somewhere land in this small desert town in the 50s. Totally classic kind of template for this type of story, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and so forth. But in this one, like in the one with the giant robot where they come off in Washington, D.C., the day the Earth stood still, of course, where the aliens are there to deliver a message and say humanity isn't really ready for us. And that's the, the, the story here, too. But instead of doing it in this high-profile way over the radio, landing in Washington, D.C., 
see. It's just in this desert town where the aliens are taking a human form. They say, you can't see us in our true form. And they show them a couple times their true form. And it is actually amazingly abrasive. Like just the way they, it's like a huge giant eye and all this stuff. And there's a sequence where they're walking across the road and I think they disappear and then they sort of flicker into view again. That genuinely shocked me, like made me jump out of my seat. And it reminded me so much of the woodsman uh, with the cars on uh, the desert highway in part eight in Twin Peaks. There's kind of, if I recall, like an electricity motif with electrical poles driving down the highway. I wouldn't be shocked if Lynch had seen this and it left some kind of impact, even though I'm hesitant to ever really attribute that to him with films, unless it's, you know, some really specific film that you know he watched and loved and references overtly. But there's a lot here that relates to his visualization of part eight in Twin Peaks. Magical moments. What's happened? Perhaps you haven't been telling the truth, Pinocchio. And unforgettable music. When you wish upon a star. Now, this breathtaking movie experience. You are a real boy. Is available for a whole new generation to own. Watched Pinocchio and enjoyed kind of revisiting that. I just had the DVD sitting around the other day and I revisited some of my cinepoems when I was editing them all together uh ones that I made years ago with the ones that I made recently uh, you know there were some clips of Pinocchio in there kind of made me want to go back and look at it and the things that fascinate me most about that film I've even thought maybe I should do like a little video on this at some point it's like it's almost sort of Disneyland quality where you have these little communities with themed little units or whatever that uh the characters move around in that sort of predict the way Disneyland would be set up as like this land with the different themes and this part over here and that part. I talked about this with a much later film with Inside Out where you're inside a girl's head and you see her different emotional spaces and they are literally set up on like an axis as if it was Disneyland. That whole theme is geography basically idea. And in this film in Pinocchio you have first the uh, the little clockwork doohickeys that Geppetto's created in his wood shop and each one has kind of a fun little twist it's like a a guard popping out of a of, of a tower and circulating around you have this guy popping out with the x's on his eyes and a little alcohol bottle burping or hiccuping you have the woman spanking her child because he spilled some stuff just all these cool little knickknacks that the animators created and that jiminy cricket is kind of bumping around inside and this to me has like a little disney Disneyland attractions kind of idea to it where each each little themed unit laid out next to each other little worlds basically and then you have the village that Pinocchio lives in you get these sort of aerial vistas of it it has a very fantasy land feel of these kind of thatched 19th century little homes with the church tower and the hills rolling in the distance and all of that and you have the little tavern that they're in and the field on the outskirts of town I kind of like the outlay of that and then finally most obviously you have Pleasure Island which is like the evil version of Disneyland where the kids go and you can go here just to have your cigars thrown out by the giant Indian, or you can go here to rampage around a mansion and break all the stained glass windows, or you can go here to get into a fight in a big tent. And you know, there's just like all the rides and themes and attractions for kids, particularly boys to get out their unruly side. And the price of that is you turn into a donkey. You can read what you will into that prophecy of where the Disney corporation would lead. No, no, not now. I have so many things to make up for. I'll give you until midnight. Until midnight, Mr. Stone, but not one minute more. Devil and Daniel Webster I watched. This is a favorite film of mine. I hadn't seen it in a while, but I love Walter Houston's performance as the devil in this. One of the all-time great 
charismatic kind of villain figures. I mean, he's he's so good in everything he does, but I love how he has, you know, a Walter Houston performance when you see it, but he also plays wildly different characters. Like his, his the prospector he plays in Treasure of the Sierra Madra, just even his accent, his physicality, his whole demeanor is so different from Scratch, the devil and the devil and Daniel Webster, but they kind of have a common thread between them. And another thing I like about Devil and Daniel Webster is it takes place in New Hampshire, the state I grew up in and I currently live in as well. And uh, looking at New Hampshire in like the 1830s or 40s, I feel like you don't see New Hampshire in films that much. And when you do, it always intrig- intrigues me. And one of my favorites... Uh, New Hampshire films is the film Affliction. And I think also, if I'm not mistaken, The Sweet Hereafter takes place in New Hampshire. I'm not sure if that's New Hampshire or like upstate New York, but both based on novels by Russell Banks. They're like snowy, small town stories with dark family secrets that relate in interesting ways to Twin Peaks. But yeah, The Devil and Daniel Webster, another much earlier New Hampshire film where a farmer makes a deal with the devil so his farm will start to prosper. As he prospers, of course, the, the clock is ticking and he has to give up his soul and it comes to almost a America itself being on trial where Walter Houston marches out these different figures from America's past and uh, has them serve as the jury not just Benedict Arnold but people who like massacred Native Americans and slave traders and stuff I find works like this interesting that simultaneously mythologize America and play and dig into the kind of existing mythology of America while also critiquing it in some way I think that to me is sometimes more interesting than just a pure demythification if that makes sense while others for scandal, two lovers find refuge, defying the prying eyes of the outside world, daring to live and love as they dream. Another one at this time was The Enchanted Cottage. This was a sort of, well, very sentimental tale that I enjoyed of a, what's the word I'm looking for, like a bed and breakfast type of of inn and this woman comes to work there and she's very homely she can't find a husband anywhere and you know at this time this is this is take place in like the late 30s the early 40s world war ii actually ends up playing a big part in it she is working there as a servant and this couple comes on i can't remember if it's their honeymoon or if they're engaged and this is like their last trip before they're going to get married and robert young is the husband he's very kind to her and they they get along but uh you know he's of course got this wife and he's got his whole life ahead of him he's I think they're kind of well off. And then Pearl Harbor hits. We see December 7th, you know, the calendar goes by. And I love how history plays such... It's so perfectly interwoven with these more archetypal stories that they're always telling in these old films, as an aside. It's something that I always wish there was more of today, where it could just, you could naturally dovetail the the mythology of history and the mythology of these, you know, genre stories or whatever separate from that. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how coronavirus, something that had such a wide societal impact, plays out that way in the future. I don't know. I mean, sometimes they do it and it's very ham-handed. It seems like, I don't know, since the 80s or 90s, it's been more self-conscious, maybe because it's just become more unnatural for people to do, but they, they used to integrate it really well. So anyways, he comes back from the war and now he is deformed in some way. And uh, he, I think he's, I think he may be I can't remember if he's blinded as well or if he's just deformed. No, there's a blind character, of course. There's a blind character played by Herbert Marshall, who's wonderful. Always enjoy him in these films. And uh, he is kind of 
in some ways their matchmaker or their spiritual advisor. And there comes a point where they feel like after they fall in love and they get over their feeling that the other person is just settling for them, that suddenly they see themselves as being good looking again, like the, a, a fairy tale enchantment has worked out. And the question becomes, is this just in their minds or is this something that's really happened? And the way the film dealt with that was very nice. So this was like a hallmarky kind of concept, uh, just delivered in a wonderfully uh, enchanted way. I think it was Frank Borzage. The director is actually uh, John... Cromwell, not Frank Borzage as I thought it was for some reason. The only other film I think I've seen by Cromwell is Of Human Bondage with uh, Betty Davis. I think I saw that one. If that's the one with, uh, yeah, with Leslie Howard, where it's like this tormenting woman that he falls in love with. So kind of the opposite in some ways of this film. Where did you get this? My grandfather picked it up in 1812. 1812? When 6,000 British soldiers lacking in skill and enterprise captured the city of Washington. The capital of the United States. How did your grandfather get hold of this chess set? By the simple act of taking it. He was dining in the mansion from which your president had fled in some haste. You mean he stole it? My grandfather was flag lieutenant under Admiral Cohen. The president's dinner was cooked and ready to serve. The admiral and my grandfather ate it. I also watched the film The White Cliffs of Dover, which I was completely unfamiliar with. It's an Irene Dunn film where she goes to visit uh, the UK in, I think, 1914 with her father, who, of course, is uh, Frank Morgan, the infamous Wizard of Oz. She is traveling around. She meets this guy, this aristocrat. She falls in love. They get married. He dies in World War One. She has a son with him. And then the son is now going off to fight in World War II. So it's this, like, between the wars type story. And uh, came out in 1944, so obviously part of the U.S. war effort and this idea of like fostering sympathy with the British, which is interesting because uh, to me, one of the most kind of fascinating aspects of the film was the degree to which it tries to sort of present aristocracy as something honorable and understandable to the American consciousness because the characters are all very homespun Americans. You know, Frank Morgan's like a businessman from Wichita or Kansas City or something like that, plain spoken. And there's like a feud between him and a British guy at the rooming house they're staying with about the war of 1820. There's a scene where she's trying to take her son out of the country because she thinks war is coming. Um, they have a, a lunch with these two German friends of his, these little boys who are obviously in the Hitler Youth uh, back in Germany, and they're talking about war and this and that, and they're all sort of chilled, like, oh my God, what's coming? So she tries to take her son out of there. And he speaks to her, says this would be abandoning our people and our estate and where to look after them and all this type of thing. So it's taking this very hierarchical vision of like the purpose of aristocracy and sort of benevolent paternalism and trying to sell it to American characters through the audience because his mother is American and she doesn't really understand, even though she's lived on this estate with a little boy who's an heir to it for so many years. So I thought that element was interesting. It was also cool to see the little kids, her son and the, the girl that he's kind of in love with on the estate who's who is, just lives in like a little village kind of works a little farm she's like a tenant of the estate that the boy is played by Roddy McDowell and the girl is played by Elizabeth Taylor when they were both you know 10 years old so that was really cool to see and they were good friends those two actors my mother particularly enjoyed seeing that that was who they cast there and it comes without any acclaim because I don't think their names are in the opening credits I don't think Elizabeth Taylor's even billed at all but you see them in there this is the story of the man who came back from the war in Spain the man the fascists hounded out of Europe. The man who came back to America and found the vengeance of the enemy had struck his friends and still pursued him in his native land. During this time, I also watched The Fallen Sparrow. This was a film starring John Garfield. 
about a Spanish Civil War veteran who comes back to New York in this kind of high society that he uh, knows people from, and I th- I think maybe comes from himself. Um, as I recall, is a little ambiguous, kind of his relationship to it. But he comes back to this and he finds out that a man has followed him from Spain and they want something from him. This was a compelling story just to see Hollywood deal with this, the Spanish Civil War and the whole unfolding situation going on in Europe around that time. So a lot of people in Hollywood had supported the Spanish Civil War, the fight of the Spanish Republic, which was a very left-wing republic, even with pockets of outright anarchism, where anarchists had taken over the the area like Catalonia and we're running it on like a cooperative syndicalist basis and so you know this was this great really one of the great kind of left societies of the past century and it was under threat because these fascists this fascist kind of movement united under the general Francisco Franco initiated a civil war tried to overthrow the government replace it with a dictatorship which they eventually succeeded in and which held on for 40 years i'm going to discuss a documentary about that as well but this film is kind of hollywood's take on that it was a popular cause in the late 30s and then after it fell and immediately afterwards it was clear that you know this was kind of a a prelude and a trigger for world war 2 in a way because uh, Hitler and Mussolini had backed Franco all the way, sent airplanes to bomb the villages. And meanwhile, all the Western democracies had kind of held their distance and actually put an embargo on both sides, which ended up only helping the fascists. So there was a sense in which, uh, you know, this this conflict was just the warm-up to World War II. And this film was made in 1943, so by then already, of course, the uh, you know the the World War Two was in motion. I said I think I said World War Three before, um, but no World War Two obviously. Maureen O'Hara is in this as well. It's a bit of a noir mystery as well as kind of a political thriller because they're hunting for the killer of this policeman friend of theirs, and uh, which was supposedly a suicide, but under suspicious circumstances. Maureen O'Hara is from this family of German emigres who uh, are somewhat foreboding, and there's a sense in which they may actually be fascist supporters themselves. And so they're kind of navigating all this. It was uh, a bit of an unwieldy film. There's long parts of sort of exposition, or but but like very ambiguous exposition where you hear them talking about the stuff, and you're not. It's still not totally clear what the situation is, but still enjoyable to watch. And I also thought it was interesting how a lot of the film, it's sort of enclosed. Like I had this sense at one point, like this might be sort of a low budget film because even though it's this 1940s New York, they're very much containing themselves to sort of these small rooms. And then there's a scene where he goes to a friend's like Greenwich Village apartment or something. There's that whole rear window type open window out to the courtyard in the city. And you get this cool view and it was like, okay, it's opening up a little bit here. The angel wore red, etches the screen with the unrest and excitement of reckless times and the startling story of a faithless woman who held a secret that could save a nation. And the only price she asked for it was love. This will never happen to me again. Not like this. I love you. The Angel Wore Red was another Ava Gardner film. This was very intriguing in relation to a few of the things we've discussed, and certainly what I discussed in the last Film Capsules section, where I was talking about all these films related to the Spanish Civil War, documentaries, and also some films. And this is another one that takes place during the Spanish Civil War. And the way it presents it is very interesting. This was made in like 1960. 
and uh, it was supposed to be shot in Spain. I think they had to shoot in Italy because Franco was offended by the way that they portrayed the uh, some of the, the nationalist forces in the film. Now, interestingly, though, when you watch it, you come away with the sense that it's low-key sort of sympathetic to Franco and his cause. It's The main character is a priest who's upset with the church, feels that they betrayed the workers and the peasants and understands why they're rebelling. But the Republican side of the Civil War is shown to be basically like tyrannical in their depiction in this film. Like they have a voice on the loudspeakers shouting everyone to get inside and do this and do that and this is a curfew and they really emphasize more the authoritarian aspect more than the popular aspect the fact that it was this popular front government with with all of this support among the people and the sympathetic figures throughout are these like nationalist catholics who have these old-fashioned sympathies that they just aren't understood and are suppressed by the republicans like they want to get their hands on this relic that's floating through. And the Ava Gardner character is a prostitute who befriends the priest, and they make kind of an odd couple. Very uh, compelling story from a dramatic standpoint. The political aspect to me was like, troubling and fascinating. If particularly, this was another film, like almost all these films were discussing during quarantine, when I wasn't working on a project or whatever, if I was watching a movie, it was probably during like a weekly visit to my parents watching either PBS or something recorded off TCM. So they were watching this with me and you could tell at certain points because of the way the film was sort of slippery with it, it wasn't clear if like the good guys or bad guys were, how would I put this? It's not so much that like you didn't know whether the church and the fascists were supposed to be the good guys or like the Republicans, the rebel, the, well, they weren't the rebels. They were actually the government. It was more that you didn't know who the people being presented in the film as the good and bad guys actually were. Like there was like a general who, if you weren't watching closely and weren't thinking of the history that deeply, you'd think, oh, this is like a fascist general. But it's like, well, no, actually this guy's supposed to be like a Spanish general working with the Republicans and the communists and all that. You know, they're like torturing the priests and all this. And it's not to say there weren't atrocities on both sides, but it's always a little suspect to me when you're making a film about the Spanish Civil War. And this was more of a both sides treatment, I would say, than it was like an outright sympathetic to the Franco. But it ends up kind of defaulting to sympathetic to Franco in a way, but very much from like a Catholic in. And I think that's the thing that makes the Spanish Civil War different in, well, the big thing that makes it different from Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy is it didn't fight in World War II and wasn't defeated by the Allies. So then it became a sort of a de facto ally in the Cold War against the communists. But places like Franco's Spain and Pinochet's Chile, I think, expose the lie in this idea of like communism and fascism as these consistent threats to Western democracies. It's like, well, no, you actually kind of teamed up with the fascists against the communists at certain points. And to be fair, with the communists against the fascists during World War II. But that's off on a side tangent there. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can also support this work by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Please write in any feedback you have on any of these films. Oftentimes, these are just little teasers of a discussion, really, that we could be having much further, you know, for some of these that were like a minute or a minute and a half, uh, just kind of dipping your toes in the water of the films. So I'd love to hear what other people think of these. The next episode is going to return to the film and focus format where it's a longer review, in this case of The Shanghai Gesture, a Joseph von Sternberg film, which builds off the last film we discussed in this podcast, which was uh, The Angel Wore Red, talking about this sort of war-torn um, society and what's going on in there with like a prostitute and her uh, 
kind of being entrapped in this system. Next month, October, see you for the Shanghai gesture. And here is a taste of that to take you out. My credit is at least as good as yours. I'm sure it's better. But unless you can furnish me with exact references, I can't advance more than, say, um, 5,000. 5,000, sweetie. 